Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Thursday, February 8. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, this story by Aaron Jordan, Fool's Spring Doesn't Easily Trick Iowa Trees. It may feel like spring, especially when compared with the below zero temperatures of just a few weeks ago, but Iowa's trees aren't fooled. Native trees that have evolved to be here are used to this kind of weather, said Carol Teeter, program manager for Relief Cedar Rapids. With daytime temperatures this week predicted to reach the 50s and 60s in Iowa, and nighttime temps staying in the upper 30s in some parts of the state, some Iowans might be wondering whether their oaks, elms, maples, and other deciduous trees are in danger of blooming early. When trees flower prematurely and there's a hard frost, they can lose the flowers. For fruit trees, no flowers means no fruit. But two tree experts said they don't see a big risk of that with the recent warm-up. A lot has to do with soil temperature rather than air temperature, Teeter said. If we had several days in the 60s or 70s, then the soil temperature might warm up and we could have some real problems then if the temperatures plunge but it's going to be back to the 30s and 40s. They'll be fine. Patrick O'Malley, a commercial horticultural field specialist with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach, said multiple factors determine when deciduous trees come out of dormancy. Most eastern Iowa trees need 800 or more chill hours between 32 and 45 degrees to break dormancy. Days when the temperature is below 32 degrees like it was in early January, don't count toward the total. Neither do days when nighttime temperatures are above 45 degrees. The corridor has between 400 and 500 chill hours this week, according to the Midwest Regional Climate Center at Purdue University. The bottom line is we are good for now, but for the rest of this month, the less hours between 32 and 45 degrees Fahrenheit, the better, O'Malley said. Once the threshold has been met, trees will wait to bud until the daytime and nighttime temperatures are consistently higher. The worst case scenario would be to get several days of highs in the 70s and 80s in March and early April, like we did in 2012, O'Malley said. This caused fruit trees to bloom in mid-April instead of the normal early May. Subsequently, there were hard frosts in late April, that wiped out most of the tree fruit crop in Iowa that year. Winter is the perfect time to prune deciduous trees because the branch architecture is more visible without leaves, Teeter said. Oaks and elms should be trimmed only when the temperature is below 50 degrees. Starting three years after planting, tree owners should make sure the tree has just one central leader, which is a branch that extends from the middle upward. If you see competing branches, prune them off, she said. Cross branches, which are branches that rub against each other, should be removed, as should branches with a V connection rather than a U connection. It's ideal to do the pruning when the branch is about finger size, Teeter said. You never want to prune more than 25% of a tree in any given year. And the article includes several photos. Cedar Rapids employee Jeremy Kuda uses a chainsaw on Wednesday to cut larger branches, 
while pruning a tree along First Avenue East in downtown. Also on the front page this morning, Iowa City settles fire department discrimination lawsuit for $925,000. This story be Alejandro Rojas for the Gazette. Iowa City has agreed to pay former firefighter Sadie McDowell $925,000 to settle a lawsuit in which she alleged discrimination and harassment in the workplace based on her gender and sexual orientation. The Iowa City Council did not discuss the settlement, which was approved unanimously Tuesday with other items on the Council's consent agenda. McDowell, who filed the lawsuit in 2022, attended the Council meeting Tuesday and gave a brief, emotional speech during public comment. She called on the Council to support a more equitable culture in the Iowa City Fire Department and provide better treatment for all people who seek help from public servants in Iowa City. This does not have to be the end of the story for the evolution of the ICFP and its service to the community, said McDowell, age 41. She declined to comment after the meeting. The total settlement agreement is $925,000. According to the city agenda, $500,000 of the settlement will be paid by the city's risk management fund. The remainder will be paid by the city's insurance provider. The payment will be split three ways. $516,308.07 will be paid to McDowell. $371,191.93 will be paid to McDowell's legal counsel. $37,500 will go to the Municipal Fire and Police Retirement System. McDowell's lawsuit was set for a July 30 trial in Johnson County. In a 19-page filing in 2022, lawmakers for McDowell listed some of the treatment they said she experienced as a fire department employee from her hiring in June 2011 until she was placed on unpaid leave in 2022. This included reportedly receiving praise as the only good woman firefighter who had served in the department. She also overheard co-workers commenting on female employees' appearance and their sexual and dating history. The filing states that in 2017, McDowell was subjected to unwanted and non-consensual kissing and groping by another firefighter. A week later, when McDowell confronted the man, he said it was her fault, explaining, I couldn't help myself because your body is just too sexy. According to the suit, male firefighters told McDowell, who was gay, that she had the hottest wife in the department. McDowell also alleged she worked with a captain who asked her to drive him and other firefighters around town when students went out partying, partying so male firefighters could ogle young women and comment on their appearance. Co-workers also reportedly made racist comments, including how black people from Chicago were ruining Iowa City, and homophobic remarks such as that teenagers come out as gay to be cool. When McDowell complained about the incidents, nothing changed, according to the lawsuit. McDowell reported being passed over for a promotion, and her supervisor referred to diversity training as Sadie's thing. McDowell's lawsuit claimed that as a result of the conditions in the workplace, she developed mental health conditions including depression and stress-related disorders. McDowell was the city's fourth female firefighter when she was hired in 2011. 
the city's first, Linda Eaton, made national news in 1979 after department leaders would not let her breastfeed her baby during breaks at the station. Fellow firefighters and their wives said it wasn't fair Eaton could spend private time with a family member on her shift when the same privilege wasn't extended to wives and other children, Little Village reported in 2015. Eaton lost a discrimination lawsuit against the city in 1981. Also on the front page this morning, this story by Caleb McCullough is titled, Lawmakers Regulate Consumable Hemp Products. It's sort of the wild, wild west out there in a lot of ways. Iowa lawmakers want to add a raft of regulations on the sale of hemp-derived cannabis products. House Study Bill 665 was advanced by Republican House lawmakers on Wednesday. The bill would allow the Department of Health and Human Services to regulate sale and distribution and set a maximum potency limit for products derived from hemp, which the bill calls consumable hemp products. It also would ban the use of consumable health products by people under age 21 and impose criminal penalties on people and businesses that sell or give those products to minors. Consumable hemp refers to a range of products legalized under the 2018 Federal Farm Bill and the later Iowa Hemp Act. The laws allow for the sale of hemp products that contain less than 0.3% THC by weight. THC is the main chemical in marijuana that causes the high. While the law was intended to address low-potency CBD sales, it also legalized the sale of hemp-derived THC products that have a similar psychoactive effect to products sold in states where recreational marijuana is legal. Republican lawmakers said the bill was necessary to regulate an industry that is not heavily regulated by state law. Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, who led the subcommittee meeting, said lawmakers did not expect the products currently being sold in Iowa when they passed the Iowa Hemp Act. We thought we were dealing with the intoxicating aspect, only to find out that there are ways to get around that, Holt said. So it's sort of the wild, wild west out there in a lot of ways. With THC-infused drinks being able to be served to minors, a lot of other things going on that are not acceptable. While 5 to 10 milligrams of tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, can be intoxicating, some drinkable products have 1,000 milligrams or more per can, according to the state's Bureau of Cannabis Regulation. These products often are marked as, quote, heavy, end quote, because of the large doses of THC by weight of the product. Holt and Republican Representative Phil Thompson of Boone advanced the bill for consideration by the Full House Public Safety Committee. Representative Bob Kressig, a Democrat from Cedar Falls, did not vote to advance it. Kressig said he supported the stricter rules around licensing and restrictions on sales to minors but he was worried it would limit access for people who need the products. I'll just admit I use it. I use it to sleep at night, he said, because this job and the stress and stuff, and it works. The bill would create criminal and civil penalties for selling consumable hemp products without first registering with the state. 
It also allows HHS to confiscate products from retailers that it deems to be in violation of the law. Hemp growers and owners of shops that sell CBD and THC products in Iowa told lawmakers during the subcommittee meeting they had no problem with some of the bill's provisions, but that others were overly punitive and vague. A major point of contention was the rule allowing HHS to set a cap on the potency of products. While the law limits products to 0.3% by weight, there is currently no cap to the amount of THC in each package or unit sold by Iowa retailers. Phil Gothier, who grows and sells consumable hemp products in central Iowa, said the rules and regulations in the bill are too vague and the cap on product potency was unnecessary. This takes into account no reason for why the person is consuming it, how they're consuming it, or anything like that, he said. So when we take steps backwards, why are we then taking away independence, choices, and freedoms that Iowans have currently? Some people also objected to the fact that the prohibition on use by minors offers no exception for CBD and other non-psychoactive hemp products. Scott Booher, who operates Four Winds Farms in Amana, produces CBG, another non-psychoactive hemp product. He said some parents buy the products for their children to help with medical issues. Let's look at what needs to be taken care of instead of just sweeping everybody under the rug, he said. We have patients that are kids. We have parents that buy our hemp products for their children for ADD, for behavioral problems. CBD products have been approved for medical use for children with certain seizure disorders, but medical authorities say there are risks associated with its use in minors. The bill was proposed by the Iowa Department of Public Safety. Josie Wagler, the department's legislative liaison, said it was necessary to regulate the high-potency products that are available to Iowans. We've seen an emergence of high-potency High THC products hit the market, Wagler said, and coupled with that, there are no age restrictions for purchasing these products. So really, the purpose is to get to that and to give HHS and law enforcement some additional tools to help regulate these highly intoxicating products. Some Iowa mental health groups are registered in favor of the bill. Leslie Carpenter, the co-founder of Iowa Mental Health Advocacy, said at the meeting that the availability of potent THC products, especially to minors, poses a risk for psychotic disorders and schizophrenia. There is some evidence that frequent cannabis use in adolescence is linked to higher rates of schizophrenia. As THC levels have risen, we have seen an increase in the number of people who develop psychoses and schizophrenia, even in families where they have no genetic tie to any mental illness, she said. Turning now to page two, Linmar board member resigns. This story by Grace King. Linmar school board member Matt Rollinger resigned from the board Friday in a letter more than a year before the end of his term. Rollinger, who was first elected in November 2021, did not cite a reason for his resignation in a letter to the board read by President Barry Buckholz during the school board meeting Monday. Rollinger was not present at the meeting. The vacancy will be filled by appointment by the school board. Information about how to apply can be found online beginning Thursday at 
lynnmar.k12.ia.us. The deadline for those interested in a seat on the Lynmar School Board to submit their application and resume is 4 p.m. February 21st. A motion to appoint a new school board member will be made February 26th by the school board. The term will expire at the next school board election in November 2025. Residents can force a special election by filing a petition within 14 days of a school board member's resignation or February 16. The petition has to be signed by 30% of the turnout of the last school board election, which is 2,407 signatures, said Matt Warfield, Lynn County Deputy Auditor. A special election would cost $35,000, the auditor's office estimated. Buckholz said Rollinger's resignation came as a surprise and was a personal decision made by Rollinger. He didn't think about it quickly. It was a major decision for him. We appreciate his time as an elected official, Buckholz said, echoing other board members who thanked Rollinger for his service. In his letter, Rollinger thanked the community for allowing him to serve as a school board member for more than two years. I can only apologize to them for not being able to complete my term on the board, Rollinger wrote in his letter, read by Buckholz. The position has allowed me to gain substantial knowledge, and I hope to continue to serve my community in other capacities in the future. I pray for nothing but success for the district, the community, and Linmar. During his term, Rollinger opposed a now-defunct policy that was intended to protect transgender students from discrimination. The policy spelled out inclusive practices for transgender students, including giving students access to restrooms, locker rooms, or changing areas that corresponded with their gender identity. Buckholz also voted in opposition to the policy, which was approved in a 5-2 vote. Shortly after the policy was adopted in May 2022, Rollinger was invited to a private meeting with Governor Kim Reynolds and U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson. Rollinger did not alert the rest of the school board and said he did not go as a school board representative. Rollinger was chastised by the rest of the board for not making them aware of the meeting beforehand. If you got an email inviting you to a meeting that specifically said it was in regard to the district and didn't tell any of us, that's the part that gets sketchy for me. We're supposed to share information concerning the district. It's in our guidelines. It's in our ethics. Then school board president Britannia Morey said at the time. Morey was recently re-elected in November, but is no longer board president. During the meeting with the governor, about 40 people spoke about their concerns about new policies. The event was not open to the media, and the governor's spokesperson said the meeting was private. In August 2022, a parent group sued the Linmar Community School District, superintendent, and board members over the policies, asserting that they violated parents' rights to consent and students' rights to express a different opinion. In September of 2023, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that a portion of the policy, which requires respect, was too vague, and enforcement of that portion of the policy was banned. The group's other complaint about the policy, that it prevented notification of parents when their child was given a gender support plan or assumed a transgender status, was moot with the passage of Senate File 496. That bill, which was signed into law last year, prohibits a school district 
from knowingly giving false or misleading information to a parent or guardian of their child's gender identity or intention to transition to a different gender than listed on the student's birth certificate. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial column today is a reprint from Tuesday's Washington Post and the title, Congress, Don't Touch That AM Dial Just Yet. Contrary to the popular refrain, video never really did kill the radio star. Electric vehicles, however, might do the job. Automakers are starting to remove AM radios as standard equipment from new electric vehicles. Electric motors render the fuzzy sound of AM stations fuzzier still. Keeping AM radios in cars costs manufacturers. Still, protests from AM's allies are coming from both sides of the aisle. A bipartisan bill co-sponsored in the Senate by Edward Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Ted Cruz, a Republican from Texas, would require car manufacturers to maintain AM broadcast radio by default in new vehicles, electric or not, at no additional charge. Their reason, the Federal Emergency Management Agency relies on AM to transmit emergency alerts. FEMA has been expanding its ability to deliver its messages via more modern media, but AM is reliable. Its simplicity makes it less vulnerable to hacking or other manipulation by adversaries than more complicated systems with more possible points of failure. It also can reach everyone all the time, even in areas with no cell service or Wi-Fi. And it's free. The Government Accountability Office will report whether any alternative communications systems could achieve the same reach and reliability as AM radio. Officials ought to find a way because the alternative is equipping vehicles forevermore with an obsolete technology. What happens then? No AM in cars will mean no AM at all before long. There are nearly 4,200 AM stations across the nation and more than 82 million Americans per month listen. AM and FM together account for about 60% of all in-car listening, even with satellite radio and streaming. Afternoon hours on some stations are dominated by right-wing talk, perhaps accounting for the many conservative legislators lined up to save AM. The rest of the day, though, often features vital agricultural information for nearby farmers, or spotlights community events that families might otherwise miss. Many AM stations also are devoted to programming in Spanish or other languages. AM radio brought Franklin D. Roosevelt's fireside chats to an anxious public. It brought sports stars to fame through announcers' frenzied commentary. It brought the Beatles to America. Yet, as important as AM radio is to American culture, so is limiting government to essential regulatory tasks. It isn't Congress's role to prop up the industry by forcing lawmakers to install a feature the market says isn't worth the while. And again, that is a reprint from Tuesday's Washington Post. 24-hour doorman today is titled, Reynolds's Bill Creates an Uglier Iowa. You gotta wonder why Governor Kim Reynolds doesn't simplify her vendetta against transgender Iowans. Have some guts, Governor. Give a speech. Put it all out there. 
because with her latest bill, it's obvious the governor wants transgender Iowans to get out, hit the road, or at least disappear into the shadows. Transgender Iowans refuse to conform to the governor's view of morality. They offend her version of Christianity. They mess up her ideal Iowa. So all of us get to live under laws reflecting her preferences. The bill would make it legal to provide separate but equal accommodations for trans Iowans in state-run or funded facilities, such as rape crisis centers and domestic abuse shelters. She sees trans women as a constant threat. Never mind that the Iowa Coalition Against Sexual Assault and the Iowa Coalition Against Domestic Violence both oppose the governor's bill. Reynolds's bill defines the terms man, woman, mother, and father in such a way that it punishes trans and non-binary people for living outside what she considers normal, needlessly complicating their lives and the lives of their families. The governor is fond of declaring Iowans no, the difference between boys and girls, but what about right and wrong? Her bill required transgender Iowans to also list their sex at birth on driver's licenses and other government documents. Then it would be easy for the police, a bouncer at a bar, or a grocery store cashier to know who is trans and who is not. What could go wrong? On Tuesday, the full House Education Committee pulled the driver's license requirement. That Does that mean the idea is dead? Maybe. Unwritten in the bill is permission for Iowa to become a more ugly, hateful state. This bill protects us from irrational and radical behaviors that are harmful to society, said Patty Alexander of Indianola, who backs the bill. During a Tuesday House Education Subcommittee meeting, please protect us from the immoral will of others. Another supporter, Courtney Collier, said, People choose to live in delusions and confusions in their own life at home, but the rest of us should not be forced to join them. They're bullies and a mob, according to the family leader. Other and them were key words. You know them, the immoral, confused, and delusional seeking to harm our society. They're not just a very small, already marginalized group of Iowans simply seeking to live their lives without being attacked again and again. Reynolds has demoralized and dehumanized trans Iowans in record time. Iowa law has prohibited discrimination based on gender identity since 2007, but suddenly 0.29% of Iowa's population has become public enemy number one. Trans rights have been methodically curtailed, culminating in Reynolds' latest effort to make Iowa separate but equal. They're being scapegoated for problems they don't cause and threats they don't pose. Reynolds is working hard to become the George Wallace of trans segregation. It's chilling to watch our leaders dust off a playbook used to great effect by dictators across the globe and homegrown racists. Too few Iowans seem to care much. Just ask yourself, who's next? And that is 24-Hour Dorman. One community letter today is titled, Grassley's Committee Can Target Swipe Fees. In 2024, Senator Chuck Grassley, along with other members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, will have the opportunity to preserve the livelihoods of businesses across Iowa. Despite being the cornerstone of Iowa's economy, small businesses are fending themselves, excuse me, finding themselves struggling to cover the increasing burden of credit card swipe fees.
These fees, hidden costs that merchants incur every time a customer taps, inserts, or swipes a credit card, punish entrepreneurs for allowing customers to use credit cards as payment. This is forcing many businesses to pass added costs on to consumers, stop accepting cards, or close down shop. Last year, credit card networks swiped $130 billion from hardworking business owners through these fees. Visa and MasterCard, the two culprits behind this scheme, get away with it because they control 80% of the credit card arena. By forming a duopoly, Visa and MasterCard can raise these swipe fees with minimal pushback. It's a bitter pill to swallow. Luckily, pending legislation in Washington would put an end to this one-sided system. Known as the Credit Card Competition Act, the bipartisan policy would leverage the free market by giving small businesses more options for payment processing. By doing so, Visa and MasterCard would lower their own swipe fee rates, putting money back into the pockets of hardworking business owners and consumers alike. I urge Senator Grassley to protect Main Street and support the Credit Card Competition Act. And that letter today is by Laura Cobb from Brighton. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 8, on IRIS. Now we turn to today's obituary page, beginning with the short notices. In Baldwin, Arlene Wyrup, age 86, died Tuesday, February 6. Carson's Celebration of Life Center, Makokoda. From Cedar Rapids, Dutch B. Long, age 46, died Sunday, February 4. Iowa Cremation. From Elberon, Vernon Parizic, age 94, died Tuesday, February 6. Phillips Funeral Home, Keystone. And in Middle Amana, Robert Robertson Sr., age 84, died Tuesday, February 6. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Turning to the regular notices, first from Cape Coral, Florida, Dennis Michael Glover was born February 17, 1953, to David A. and Dolores D. Foster Glover. He gained his angel wings peacefully passing on January 29 in Cape Coral, Florida, just weeks before his 71st birthday. Born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and spent most of his life There, he attended Regis High School, where he excelled at basketball, football, baseball, and graduated from Washington High, both in Cedar Rapids. A visitation will be held at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on Friday, February 9, from 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. A funeral service will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories on Saturday, February 10, at 1 p.m., with the certified celebrant, Randy Walton officiating. The family suggests donations to Dennis's favorite charities, including Salvation Army, Iowa Public Television, the University of Iowa, the Food Pantry of Lynn County, and Senior Friendship Centers in Fort Myers, Florida. In Coralville, William, known as Bill Lavelle, age 88, passed away February 6th in Iowa City. A memorial mass will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 17th at St. Thomas More Catholic Church in Coralville. Bill was born on January 17, 1936 in Sioux City, Iowa to William and Hazel Smith Lavelle. He graduated from Helan High School in Sioux City. 
He graduated from the University of Iowa Dental School before serving in the United States Navy for two years. Upon discharge, he returned to Iowa, joining his good friend Gene Zack in a dental practice in Cedar Rapids. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to Essence of Life Hospice, the Newman Center, Regina Catholic Education Center, or St. Thomas More Catholic Church. In Jessup, Carolyn J. Mum Harkin Hackwell, age 84, died Monday, February 5, at her home following a sudden illness. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 10, at the First Presbyterian Church in Jessup. Burial will be at 1 p.m. Sunday, February 11, at Cedar Crest Cemetery in Jessup. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 9, at White Funeral Home in Jessup, and continue for an hour before services Saturday at the church. Memorials are suggested to the Jessup Ambulance Association, Jessup American Legion Post Number 342, or to the Independence American Flag Fund, established at Bank, Iowa. Arrangements are with White Funeral Home in Jessup. In Cedar Rapids, Lavona Ellen LaGrange, age 93, passed away at Colonial Manor of Amana on Tuesday, February 6th, with family by her side. A visitation will be held Saturday, February 10, from 1 until service time at 2, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Interment will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Ellen was born June 24, 1930, in rural Monticello, Iowa, to Albert and Anna Fosick Marek. In 1988, she married Leo LaGrange, who preceded her in death in 2006. She was employed by Stouffer's Five Seasons in the housekeeping and laundry departments. She retired in 1995. Memorials are suggested to Essence of Life Hospice, 606 39th Avenue, P.O. Box 333 in Amana, 52203. Online condolences can be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. From Iowa City, Patricia Ann Eckhart, age 84, died peacefully Friday, February 2, surrounded by her family. A memorial service will be celebrated at 2.30 p.m. Sunday, February 11, at Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Iowa City. The Reverend Dr. Brent Hartwig will officiate. A reception will be held Saturday, February 10, from 2 to 4 p.m. at Oak Knoll Retirement Center on Benton Street. Parking will be available on George Street. Memorials are suggested to Lutheran World Relief and Iowa City Hospice. Patricia was born June 27, 1939, in Toledo, Ohio, the daughter of Hermond and Catherine Davis Lacey. She was raised in Los Alamos, New Mexico, on May 29, 1961. Patricia married Pastor Bill Wilfred Eckhart. Online condolences can be left at lensingfuneral.com. From Marion, Thomas, known as Tom C. Markley Pollard, age 76, passed away Monday, February 5, at his home. The family will greet friends from 12 to 2 p.m. on Saturday, February 10, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion, where a funeral service will follow at 2 p.m. Pastor Mike Morgan officiating. Burial will follow at Oakshade Cemetery in Marion with full military honors accorded 
by the Marion, um, excuse me, Marion American Legion and Iowa Army National Guard honors detail. Tom was born on April 12, 1947 in Waterloo, Iowa, the son of Thomas J. and Betty Nichols Markley. He was raised by his adoptive parents, Joseph Clayton and Beulah May Woods Pollard. He graduated Osceola High School and went on to serve honorably in the United States Army during the Vietnam War. Memorials in his memory may be directed to his family. Please share a memory of Tom at MurdochFuneralHome.com. From Colesburg, Robert, known as Bob Dean Brown, born September 19, 1936, to Elmer K., or Mike, and Margaret Hansel Brown in Manchester. He passed away at home on his beloved farm, February 5, 2024. Bob attended country school in Mallory Township for one year and then attended and graduated from Colesburg High School in 1954. He played on the 1952 state championship baseball team. And after graduation, he farmed with his father and worked in construction until enlisting in the United States Army. He served in the transportation unit at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, 1959 to 1961. Visitation will be from 9 to 12 on Saturday, February 10 at St. Patrick's Parish Center in Colesburg. Funeral services will commence at 1 o'clock on Saturday, February 10 at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Colesburg. Burial at St. Joseph's Catholic Cemetery in Greeley, Iowa. Reverend Philip Agye will officiate with Deacon Paul Dolan assisting. Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville is assisting the family. Information is available online at KramerFuneralHome.com. Turning now to the sports page, this girls basketball story by Jeff Linder. Girls 1A Regionals get started tonight. The best area girls basketball team in Class 1A? That's easy. It's top-ranked North Lynn, 19-1 which is one victory away from nailing down its 14th consecutive 20-win season. North Lynn has a first-round bye as 1A regionals start tonight, so we'll catch up with the links later. The most improved area 1A team? That's Lansing Key, which went from 5-15 last season to 16-5 this winter, led by a bevy of freshmen and sophomores. The hottest area 1A team? Other than North Lynn, consider Sigourney at 17-4, which has gone 11-0 since the holiday break, despite a 17-day January layoff due to snow, cold, and everything else. The Savages are a South Iowa Cedar League East Division champion. The best game as the small school postseason kicks off? Here are five candidates, all of which tip off at 7 p.m. Central City at 6 and 14 at Midland 14 and 8. Midland has an advantage on win-loss records and home court, but Central City, as a member of the Tri-Rivers Conference West Division, while the Eagles are in the East, is superior in strength of schedule and has history on its side too. The Wildcats won 67 to 45 at home on December 7. Both teams have a player averaging more than 19 points per game in Midland's Anna Bartles and Central City's Bailey Weber. With Midland 40th and Central City 43rd in the B.C. Moore computer ratings, this is the area game of the night.
Next, North Tama at 9 and 10 is at Meskwaki, 10 and 8. The rubber match in this season series is an elimination game. North Tama claimed a 44 to 34 verdict in both teams' season opener, November 28, when Meskwaki rolled in the rematch, 64 to 34, on January 22nd. Freshman Dorothy Bear leads the Warriors in scoring at 11.9 points per game, with senior Sia Bear adding 9.9 points per game and leads with team assists and steals. Junior Ava Breckenridge places the, or excuse me, paces the Red Hawks at 12.9 points per game. Clinton Ridge at 9 and 12 plays at Marquette at 10 and 12. Clayton Ridge won two of its last three regular season games. The lone loss in that span was a 32 to 31 defeat to North Fayette Valley. The Eagles have allowed 26.3 points per game in that span. Three of their top four scorers are juniors, providing hope for a big jump in the 2024-25 season. Six-foot senior Megan Kramer leads Bellevue Marquette at 14.3 points per game. BGM at 5-15 and 15 is at HLV 9-9. and 9. HLV owns wins of 59-24 and 50-33 this season over its alphabet rival. The Warriors were beneficiaries of Tri-County's inability to field a team this winter. Leading scorer Ayla Hall, a junior, is a Tri-County student and averages 12.2 points per game. And lastly, Turkey Valley at 7-14 and 14 is at East Buchanan at 14-7. and 7. East Buchanan enters the postseason on a high, scoring late to beat Maquoketa Valley 57-55 to 55 in its regular season finale. The Bucks have won four of their last five games. Junior Laney Hogan recently surpassed the 1,000-point mark and is averaging 16.2 points per game. Turkey Valley has only one senior on its rock roster. The victor advances to play at Edgewood-Colesburg on Tuesday. And in boys basketball, top-ranked Kennedy overpowers number two West. You could call this many things. The Cyrus-Courtney game, that'd be a great moniker. The game that kept the regular season streaked intact, solid. The game that showed the gap between Cedar Rapids-Kennedy's boys basketball team and everyone else in the state in 4A might be somewhat pronounced. Yup, the game where the Cougars were really poor at one thing, free throw shooting. Sure, if you want to go trolling. Class 4A's top-ranked team shot just 9 of 18 from the line Tuesday night, but that was about the only thing Kennedy didn't do well in a convincing 71-57 win over number 2 Iowa City West. I told our guys that we put together the toughest schedule we could in the non-conference, said Kennedy coach John McCowan. Iowa City West has been playing great. What I love about our team is that we have such emotional maturity. They were the same whether we were on a run or they were on a run. That's what wins big-time games. Kennedy, at 18-0, and shot 70% from the field in a 40-point first half that gave it a 12-point halftime lead. That lead grew to as many as 18 in the second half before West cut it to as few as seven late in the third quarter. But that was as close as the Trojans could get. Too much Kennedy, too much Courtney. 
The senior forward finished with a career-high 26 points, making 11 of 15 shots from the field. That included three of four shooting from three-point land. It just came to me, Courtney said. I didn't go into this game like I was going to drop, what, 26 points. Our team was struggling, and we just needed to have someone step up. Today was my day. I stepped up, and then we got us the win. In sports of area interest today, City High Boys Basketball plays at Kennedy at 7.30 p.m., and again, girls Class 1A regionals begin tonight. If you're listening on the radio, I was at Penn State at 6 p.m. on KXIC 800, and women's basketball finds Penn State at Iowa at 8 p.m., also on KXIC. Turning to the Things to Do column today in the educational category, Co-College Contemporary Issues Forum. The speaker will be D.J. Patil, considered to be one of the most influential data scientists in the world. He was appointed by President Barack Obama as the first U.S. chief data scientists. That takes place at Co-College Sinclair Auditorium, and that is from 7.30 to 9 p.m. Turning now to the hoopla section, Chew on This Column by Elijah Decius is titled Biggs Barbecue and Brew Pub Moving to New Mount Vernon Location. A scratch barbecue and brewing staple in Mount Vernon is moving. Big Barbecue and Brew Pub, first opened in 2017, hopes to reopen on February 15 at 106 First Street West in downtown Mount Vernon. The restaurant closed at its original location, 124 2nd Avenue Northwest on January 28th. Owners Nanette Rambo and her husband Jimmy Doherty purchased the restaurant in 2021. The location came up. It's prime, Rambo said. We grew out of the restaurant location we were in. To be on Main Street with all the other businesses is kind of a win. The restaurant plans to add breakfast to the menu with its reopening. And a Guatemalan-Mexican restaurant in Cedar Rapids has closed less than a year after opening. Guatemex restaurant Elanita, which opened in June at 1616 First Avenue Northeast, closed on an unspecified recent date. Its Facebook page was updated to permanently closed about a week ago. In addition to Mexican food, which was which has saturated the Cedar Rapids market with more than 30 options, the restaurant offered a unique specialty in Central American cuisine at a modest price. Its building was previously home to Brick City Grill. If you have comments, features reporter Elijah Decius can be reached at 319-398-8340. Also in the food category, this story, Barrett's After Dark by Elijah Decius. Barrett's Quality Eats, the casual concept opened in July by a chef with TV chops and national awards, is finally making good on its tagline, all day. For the past seven months, the restaurant that was mostly called Barrett's All Day has served breakfast and lunch through quality pastries, a full sandwich and salad menu, deli case, and luxe desserts. Chef Corey Barrett, who opened the restaurant, after three James Beard Awards semi-finalist nods, 17 episodes as a sous chef on Iron Chef, 
and a 2019 win on the Food Network's Spring Baking Championship, wanted a joint with wholesome but convenient food he didn't have to dumb down, stuff he would make for his own family at home. It's a dreamy menu, but leaves dinner diners to simply dream after it closes at 3 p.m. every day. Barrett's After Dark, a limited dinner series launched in January, and that changes that. We make a lot of delicious food throughout lunch and breakfast. We have a lot of people on staff who have done fine dining dinners. It's a fun piece to explore and get back into. We all have a passion for that type of food as well. With the first few dinners sold out, the dinners offered twice a month have given chefs and kitchen staff a chance to branch out with new embellishments, well-executed research, and a sense of finesse that comes naturally to those with culinary talent. The theme for January 26th, Milan and Beyond, lived up to its name. At $80 per person, the five-course meal included a cocktail, wine, and beer. Other dinners ranged from $55 to $100 per person. When we thought about doing an Italian dinner, it was like, you can do olive oil or butter, Barrett said, as he introduced the evening's theme. During a cold Iowa winter, a rich butter fits the bill. In brief, if you go, it's called Next Barrett's After Dark Dinner Parisian Bistro. That takes place at 6.30 p.m. on February 14th. Barrett's Quality Eats is located at 3242 Cross Park Road in Coralville. Tickets are sold by the table, and to see the menu and buy tickets, go to barrettsallday.com. The Cedar Rapids Museum of Art is featuring Land Slash Scape, Climate, the Environment, and Beyond, an all-Iowa juried expedition. That takes place February 10th through May 19th and is located on the first floor galleries at the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art. Hours there are noon to 4 p.m., Tuesday and Wednesday, Friday and Sunday, 10 to 4 on Saturday, and noon to 8 on Thursdays. The museum is closed on Mondays. Admission rates vary. The exhibition reception is scheduled from 5 to 6.30 p.m. today, celebrating landscape and ravenous, and that's free and open to the public. Comments begin at 5.30 p.m. Finishing up with a brief look at the weather, looking for showers and storms likely today, the wind out of the south at 20 to 30, and a high of 61 degrees in Cedar Rapids, 63 in Iowa City. The normal for today is 30 for a high and 13 for a low. A record high set today of 57 degrees in 1925 might be in jeopardy. The record low for today was 23 below zero, and that set in 1905. Partly cloudy skies remain for the rest of the weekend. Highs tomorrow, 50, and then reaching only the low 40s by Saturday and Sunday. Sunset tonight is at 5.31 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.10 a.m. That makes today's daylight 10 hours and 19 minutes. And we are in the new moon phase with new moon rise at 7.24 a.m. and set at 5.16 p.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 8. I've been your reader, Kathleen.
You can access today's reading online at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening, and have a great, safe day. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota 
has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.